Welcome to The Bone Beat, conversations on health policy issues affecting musculoskeletal care and supporting advocacy efforts to advance access and quality. Brought to you by the American Association of Orthopedic Surgeons. Here's your host, Kristen Coltis. For this seventh episode of The Bone Beat, we're diving into another one of AAOS's top priorities of its unified advocacy agenda, and that is repealing the ban on physician-owned hospitals. Now, as we've noted in other episodes, that agenda was set last year and has had to be flexible as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. But physician-owned hospitals have actually stepped up in a big way during this time to help with the flood of patients requiring hospitalization and to provide an alternate safe setting of care, making the need to permanently lift restrictions on their expansion and development that much more important. Here to talk about that with us today is Congressman Michael Burgess from the 26th District of Texas. Just a little bit about the congressman. He spent nearly three decades practicing as an OBGYN in North Texas prior to resuming office in 2003. And today he is the most senior medical director serving in the House of Representatives. Welcome, Congressman Burgess, to the show. Well, great. Thanks, Kristen. Thanks so much for uh, for giving me the, the chance to be on with you all today. I am also joined by Catherine Hayes, who leads the legislative arm of the AAOS Office of Government Relations and is here to shed light on the association's advocacy efforts on this topic for our members. So welcome back, Catherine. And why don't you start us off by just briefly explaining what a physician-owned hospital is and why it's relevant to musculoskeletal care. Thanks, Kristen, and thanks again for having me back. Uh, so before we dive into physician-owned hospitals, I do want to note that AUS members, all orthopedic surgeons, practice in many different type, type of settings, and physician-owned hospitals are just one type of the setting. A physician-owned hospital is a hospital that is owned wholly or in part by doctors. They are full-service centers and provide inpatient and outpatient surgical services. They're typically smaller in size. They are more likely to have emergency departments and operating rooms. They tend to focus more on surgery rather than acute long-term care, uh, which allows them to be more efficient in their surgery. They're very relevant to musculoskeletal care and what we're trying to do through advocacy because they align with the goals that we all have of improving care and population health while reducing costs, both to the payer uh, and to the patient. And one of the benefits we highlight most, Catherine, I know, is uh, their ability to offer the highest quality of care at the lowest cost. So we're going to get into some of that in a bit, but I want to go over to you, Dr. Burgess, uh, because of all the healthcare issues you're tackling, I'm curious, why did you first get involved in trying to repeal the ban on these facilities? Tell us about your relationship and background with physician-owned hospitals. Can I just, uh, from a historical perspective, I almost feel like a, a physician-owned hospital concept is uh, is in my DNA. My dad, along with 12 other physicians in uh, Denton County, Texas, back in the 1970s, the early 1970s, decided that uh, they had had enough of the governance and the problems that they had at a county facility and 
wanted to run things themselves. They thought they could do a better job of taking care of their patients. My dad was a general surgeon, but the uh, the, the 12 physicians involved represented the entire gamut from orthopedists to family physicians to OB-GYNs. And they just thought they could do it better. And I, I do remember thinking this was probably two years before I went to medical school. And, and I remember looking at what my dad was doing and thinking, oh my gosh, the guy is almost 50 years old. Why would he undertake something like this? <laughs> now, fast forward several years, and then when I was about the same age, I ran for Congress. So I guess uh, the, the, the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree uh, as far as making poor decisions after age 50. But my dad did build that hospital, and it was an excellent facility. It, Today, it, uh, it is the, the principal general hospital in, in the city of Louisville. It's been, uh, they've been in partnership with HCA for a number of years, but it has, uh, uh, in fact, at one point, we were the only hospital in that part of the county that was doing OB. We had the only pediatric intensive care unit uh, that was in a, a private hospital. So when doctors are in charge, they tend to look at things differently from your typical hospital administrator. Mm-hmm. And they tend to base those decisions on what is good for their patients and what is good for the community. And I think that's always the sort of the notion that I've carried with me on the concept of physician-owned hospitals. Well, I did not know about physician-owned hospitals being in your family. So that's a really unique perspective that you have and one that I'm sure has developed uh, from personal experience. So the problem is, like I mentioned at the beginning, these hospitals are prohibited from expanding or being built because of Section 6001 of the Affordable Care Act. In fact, when it passed, I know it was a huge economic loss for those already in progress. Right, Catherine? I think you have some of those numbers on hand. Yeah, as you just mentioned, Dr. Burgess, the uh, the ban on physician-owned hospitals was really arbitrary and quite devastating um, to some of these facilities that are in very important communities. Uh, when the ACA was passed, that meant that over 30 expansion projects were immediately halted. It prevented more than 40 hospitals from even opening. Um, it forced sponsors to abandon at least 40 other physician-owned hospital projects. The economic impact from this was $1.5 billion in payroll and $200 million in tax revenue, not to mention $1.3 billion in local economic activity. So I think we all know that hospitals certainly do provide um, a lot of, of revenue to the community along with, you know, hospital or patient care. Uh, but I think it's important to note that all kinds of hospitals provide this revenue um, and not just your community hospital. Uh, but I would like to hear Dr. Burgess recount of what happened uh, at the time when the ACA passed and the effect that it had on physician-owned hospitals in Texas. When it finally got heaved across the final line in probably, what, uh, third week of March of 2010, to give you some idea of how absolutely arbitrary this decision, this section 6001 was, it was entirely dependent upon the date that the bill was signed into law. So there was a hospital in Flower Mound, Texas, that had been underway for some time. They hadn't quite opened the door. The bill got signed and suddenly they were prohibited from opening because that would have been an expansion, which was a prohibited activity under section 6001. Right. Well, we we intervened and 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 actually 
got them a, a waiver to be able to open. But what a tragedy that would have been for a growing, burgeoning community in Flower Mound, Texas, one of the f- most rapidly growing communities in North Texas, to have been denied a hospital facility simply because uh, there were some doctors who thought that it was necessary to have a hospital in their community and had put the money up and put the financial risk up and put their financial statements at risk in order to open this hospital up. And now they were precluded from doing that by the Affordable Care Act. Look, the Affordable Care Act has brought us a lot of things. There's a lot of consolidation that's gone on in the healthcare space. And probably one of the most pernicious is the fact that hospitals now are buying up doctor practices. And no one has any problem with that. But look at that from a different perspective. It's okay for hospitals to own doctors, but it's not okay for doctors to own hospitals. That's nuts. So if uh, someone was a registered nurse, they could own a hospital. If they were a lawyer, they could own a hospital. If they were a bricklayer, they could own a hospital. But as they have an MD degree from a (laughs) a reputable institution of higher learning, they are now prohibited from owning a hospital. It's almost un-American when you think about uh, that conceptually. Now, I have fought this thing for years. Uh, Pete Olson, who was a, a member of Congress from down in the South Texas area, had me down to his district several years ago, and we visited several of his physician-owned hospitals that had been prohibited from expanding. He had a hospital that had a an emergency room that was basically set up and ready to go, but they couldn't get their certificate of occupancy because the Affordable Care Act prohibited that and as a consequence, they were having to deal with ha- having. They were having to use half of the emergency room beds that they were needing in that community because the hospital expansion was not allowed to open. Well, that's a perfect example of how physician-owned hospitals are unable to address this growing need for community-based care, especially during a time when choice and competition are increasingly limited for our patients. You know, here at AOS, we often point out that uh, during a challenging time like this where patients have fewer places to go and and less um, access more than ever, that physician-owned hospitals actually offer some of the highest value care given that they're physician-led. So will you just touch on why that is uh, for physician-owned hospitals in this case? Now, look, there is nothing quite like the pride of ownership. And, you know, the old statement that uh, uh, no one actually checks the water in the battery of their rent-a-car. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so preventive maintenance is, if you don't own it, uh, preventive maintenance is going to suffer. If you own it, though, if you own it, you are going to take care of it. You are going to do the preventive maintenance. You are going to look down the road to try to anticipate problems, just as those doctors in, in South Texas had had done as they saw the the, the coronavirus uh, epidemic sort of percolating a- across our state. It right. is the right thing to do. Doctors do understand, look, people will argue that we're not the best business people. That may be true, but at the same time, we know how to take care of patients. We know it's good for patients. We know how to deal with the problems in a cost-effective manner. And honestly, if we're putting our doctors at risk, why is it a problem for the Obama administration or the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services or Department of Health and Human Services? Why is it a problem for them for us to have a facility where, where we control it? 
Yeah, and speaking of preventative care and saving money in the long run, we like to point out how much physician and hospitals actually save our healthcare system. One an analysis conducted by Avalon Health Economics found that physician and hospitals are saving Medicare 3.2 billion over 10 years. The fiscal impact of transferring all cases performed at physician and hospitals to non-physician and hospitals within the same hospital referral region. In 2014 alone, physician and hospitals saved Medicare more than 258 million. So this question is for you, Dr. Burgess. What do you say to people who accuse physician-owned hospitals of cherry-picking, which, by the way, was refuted in 2015 by the British Medical Journal? Uh, the authors have said that physician-owned hospitals see the same patients at hospitals without physician ownership and are not leaving their competitors with sicker, lower-income patients. Several years ago, I was challenged on this because they said in a doctor-owned hospital, you're only going to put patients in your hospital that uh, are 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 the the good cash-paying, uh, the good insured patients where you you have a reasonable expectation of return of equity. Actually, I take a different approach to that when I. Uh, Joined with some other doctors and 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 created a, an ambulatory surgery center and a number of orthopedists, uh, a number of ophthalmologists, a number of plastic surgeons, and we created this in our community in 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 uh, Southern Denton County. Um, look, it wasn't who is going to bring the the best insurance, but there are so many intangibles associated with bringing a patient through an operative experience one of which is the amount of time that it takes for a hospital to turn a room over between cases. Right. Well, when I had a surgery center, man, they performed just in a stellar fashion. When I tried to do my cases in the hospital, I'm usually an hour between cases. So there's nothing more valuable to me than my time. Right. Uh, and when I had a patient, if they had, if they were uninsured or they were a cash paying patient only, yeah, I'd take the risk. I'd do it at the surgery center because number one, I knew that my, my time was going to be, uh, it was going to be more effective at managing the, the conditions of, of, of uh, time and distance in a, in a physician-owned facility. That is just one of the things that we inherently do better. So now that we've talked about what physician-owned hospitals are and why we as an association and you, Dr. Burgess, believe that the ban should be lifted. I want to get into talking about what happened during COVID-19 because suddenly lawmakers saw physician-owned hospitals as an opportunity to help with the overflow of patients and, and really offering a safer center for care, which, which is great because our doctors want to help. But uh, one thing that we talk about often, and I know Catherine and our, our full advocacy team um, in Washington regularly deal with is how loosening these restrictions has created new challenges. Um, those are, one, the fact that physician-owned hospitals are treating patients during COVID, but they still have certain restrictions. And the second one is uh, what happens when this public health emergency ends? You know, do they have to work back uh, what happens to these newly expanded hospitals? So let's address the first challenge, Dr. Burgess. What issues are physician-owned hospitals facing as they take on patients during this pandemic? 
There is a large physician-owned hospital down in South Texas that has done a great job. They were prepared for uh, what they saw coming with the coronavirus. They're one of the few hospitals that I've talked to that's never had a problem with personal protective equipment because they made the investment. They saw the problem coming and they did the right thing. Now, as I talked to that doctor last uh, last, last week uh, here toward the middle of the summer, as their cases are increasing, he's not permitted to have a skilled nursing facility because he is a physician-owned hospital. And as a consequence, he's got nowhere to step down. He's got no place for patients to go uh, who are not quite ready to be discharged from hospital. He doesn't have a, a convalescent unit. He doesn't have a step-down unit to, to, for his patients to, uh, to be received. And as a consequence, he can only admit another patient to his coronavirus unit upon the death of someone. Well, we shouldn't be for that. We, sh- we shouldn't want that to be the norm. We should want that doctor group who's put their own assets, their own financial statements at risk and done the right things and has, has provided in the community the things that are necessary. We should allow them the flexibility and allow them the tools to to provide good care in their community. So that's, for, for me, that is what is sort of underscores all of this. You touched upon the liability risk, and I know we're going to get into that in a bit, uh, but but these physician-owned hospitals are also providing for the community during COVID-19. So what happens when the public health emergency ends? Uh, Catherine, I know that's been a huge concern for AOS's advocacy and recent ask of legislators. Explain some of those fears for our listeners. Yeah, that has been a really big concern of ours. Uh, For physician-owned hospitals, uh, they got really creative and they found ways to open up and expand uh, because they saw the need in their community. Uh, If we don't uh, get some some sort of relief when the public health emergency is over, they're going to be forced to scale right back down and return to the size that they were before. Uh, and it makes expanding in the first place really nerve-wracking because you're potentially losing a lot of money um, when you're simply trying to help out and do the right thing. Uh, and as Dr. Burgess mentioned, they so many put up their own capital, which makes expanding the first place for our doc- doctors really nerve-wracking. And we don't know how long the public emergency uh, will last or what may- might change. Yeah, which brings us to the legislation that Dr. Burgess introduced, the Creating Capacity for Communities in Needs Act, which AOS, by the way, uh, thanks you tremendously, Dr. Burgess, for your support. Uh, Tell us about that bill and what it will do for physician-owned hospitals amidst this pandemic. Well, uh, first off, Sam Johnson served as a member of the Texas delegation for, for years, a genuine American hero, and for years, he had been the one that had the bill that would have allowed for the the, the repeal of the of the ban on physician-owned hospitals and the and prohibited the prohibition on expansion. So I was happy to continue that legacy with with his legislation. Uh, partner in that, uh, uh, Representative Vincent Gonzalez, who's Democrat from down in the South Texas area, uh, where there is a, a, a pretty good physician-owned hospital presence. So we've 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 worked well together on that. There is uh, you know, the, the the prohibition on the the ban on new construction and expansion in hospitals. I referenced a hospital in in my neck of the woods in Flower Mound, Texas, again a rapidly growing part of the state, and. 
yes, they did get a hospital open. They were finally able to get their certificate of occupancy and and back in March of, of 2010. But it's a rapidly growing part of the state. And the fact that they have not been allowed to expand now in the last 11 years is uh, is just truly a travesty. So uh, some of the flexibilities that uh, the Department of Health and Human Services and the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services has provided in the uh, response to the coronavirus, what I would like to see is that made permanent so that, when, again, when we get to the other side of the viral pandemic, uh, these facilities are not looking at having to unwind or undo uh, what they've uh, what they've been able to put in place to allow the the increase uh, the increase in capacity. So that the whole concept of the title of the bill, creating capacities for communities in need act, high volume, high throughput Medicaid facilities that are physician owned should be allowed a little more flexibility. I think because they are doing the work that we've asked them to do and doing it in a way that is cost-effective and sensitive to the needs of the community and sensitive to the needs of the patients. And, oh, yeah, oh, by the way, it's not wrong to be sensitive to the needs of the doctors and nurses who work in the facility. Speaking of those needs, let's transition now and address the elephant in the room, and that is what will happen with the next package. Catherine, why don't you share with our listeners what the association is advocating for and asking uh, asking our legislators as they look to implement different policies for this next package? Happy to. So we are hoping to see something signed into law uh, before uh, Congress breaks for uh, what will be a very unusual August recess. We have been advocating for medical liability reform Um, Since the beginning of the pandemic, we've seen a lot of our physicians who um, are in the ICU units uh, helping with with patients, and this isn't part of their normal day-to-day practice. Uh, And the last thing that they need is a lawsuit uh, because they're trying to help out and do the right thing. We also uh, hear a lot of our doctors who have had to delay the elective surgeries due to local and state guidelines, and we want to make sure Um, again, that they are not um, hit with a lawsuit for just trying to do the right things and treat their patients um, in a way that they've been directed to. Um, We're also hoping that the accelerated and advanced payment program, that really great Medicare program um, that provided loans for uh, our members is reinstated with better loan terms, of course. Um, and I know that there is PPP money left over, but we are hoping um, that it will be redirected and potentially refunded um, so that more of that money can go directly into the hands of our physicians. So I'm curious, Dr. Bridges, uh, what are you hearing? What do you think will happen? Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to know because, uh, as, as you know, the House of Representatives passed a very, very big bill. Uh, that had a lot of this stuff, but it also had a lot of other stuff. As a, as a consequence, I could not support it when it came through the House uh, a month ago, and then it's never been taken up over on the Senate side. The Senate is today talking about uh, perhaps they will do another, uh, I, I call it response legislation. I, I don't like to refer to it as, as, as a stimulus. It's, it is a response to the, to the viral pandemic. Uh, some of the moving parts are perhaps putting more money into the 
payroll protection program that was administered through the Small Business Administration. There is some talk about uh, the uh, um, on on the uh, Medicare Advanced Payments, and you're quite correct that the formula for restructuring or the formula for repayment of those loans is a structure that can be very difficult for a physician practice to to deal with, particularly you're coming to a point where cash flows may be diminished because since the month of March or early April, uh, um, elective procedures were, uh, uh, a big pause was put on those by the Texas Medical Board in, in, in my state. In fact, the rules were, were quite specific and, and quite harsh. Um, the goal at that point was to keep hospitals from being overwhelmed. So I understand why those decisions were made. Hospitals weren't overwhelmed uh, with, to the degree that they were up in New York and New Jersey. So from that standpoint, uh, we're very grateful. The relaxation of the prohibition on performing elective procedures was welcome news when it occurred. Now that cases are increasing in Texas, there is a concern that there will be a sort of reversion back to the the stay-at-home orders, the prohibition on elective surgery. Let me actually interrupt you right there because you are hinting at a very real concern for our members and our patients. And that is what happens if these procedures are halted again. You know, there's spike, there are spikes in cases in states like yours in Texas, Florida, others. So Dr. Burgess, do you think that will happen? Obviously, it's very state and region specific, but it would have a huge impact on musculoskeletal care. I have advocated to the leaders in our state that they not do that. Uh, it was pretty injurious to hospitals and and medical offices and, and medical practices and clinics, it was pretty injurious to uh, completely obliterate their cash flow by preventing any type of elective procedure from being done or billed for. Um, yes, you want to pay attention to the number of cases in your area. You want to pay attention to the to the medical uh, countermeasures that are available in your area. But, you know, Texas is a big state and the same thing does not necessarily need to happen in every county of the state. So I hope that we're dealing with the, the increase in cases now. I, I hope it can be, I hope we've learned something along the way and it can be a little more sensitive. And look, I ran a medical practice and I recognize if you cut off uh, elective procedures, that's the cash flow. That's what you use to pay the help. That's what you use to pay the rent. That's what you use to pay the light bill. And if those dollars are not coming in, you haven't got long before you're just simply not going to be in business any longer. So there, there is there is that aspect, and I'll tell you what else is is uncomfortable. It's been not really so much the physician-owned hospital, but it's it's difficult to see hospitals furlough nurses and ancillary medical personnel because they're having problems with their cash flow at a time we're still in the middle of a pandemic. It just doesn't make good sense. So I hope we are smarter about that approach as. Uh, as we get into this, uh, whatever this next phase is, if it's a continuation of the first wave or if it is indeed the second wave, doesn't really matter to me so much what we call it. I just want us to, I want us to make the adjustments that are that are necessary to make to keep our our institutions solvent and keep our practices going and keep our people employed and keep their paychecks protected. I think we're definitely in agreement with you on that point, uh, Dr. Burgess, but I did want to go back to the medical liability piece really quickly, just because that is something that we're pushing pretty hard at AAOS. 
Uh, can you give us a little bit more information on what you've heard that's happening with that? On the liability issue, the House passed bill did not have any liability protection. I am aware that there are some people who are speaking about that only in the context of medical liability. Um, I know several of the senators are thinking of it in a broader context that would also provide liability protection to small businesses, perhaps liability protection to schools, because it is going to be important that schools be able to open up. This is not something that would be made permanent, but at least as a temporizing measure to be able to get through whatever the next part of the pandemic is. So I do think I do think you will see some significant discussion around the concept of liability reform. And I think that's right. I think that that should be part of the conversation. Um, the, the trade-off is, is going to be how many additional dollars are going to be made available in payroll protection, uh, the uh, provider relief fund over at the Department of Health and Human Services. These are the sort of the, the negotiating blocks that I see as, as going on right now. Do, do bear in mind, though, out of the big CARES bill that was signed into law on March 27th, there is a significant amount of dollars still left to be spent in, in that uh, emergency appropriation that occurred at the end of March. So it's not that some of these, some programs are running light on cash. Payroll protection probably is about at the, the limit of what they can do, but not every program in the CARES Act has, has spent through the, the dollars that are available. And I would also suggest that if there's a, if, if it is necessary for us to relook at, rebalance, reprogram dollars uh, that have previously been appropriated, I'm, I'm okay with us doing that as well. We rarely get everything right the first time we do it. And if we need to fine-tune things, I don't think we should be shy about doing that. Well, our advocacy team has been really vocal about our asks since March, and especially now. We also have a big in-district event planned for August uh, traditionally, this would happen in the summer where we bring all of our uh, leadership into Washington and we do Capitol Hill visits, but obviously everyone's been very overwhelmed with what's going on. So uh, I ask this to you, Dr. Burgess, and it's something I like to ask all of our guests, given that we're an advocacy podcast designed for our members. Can you make the pitch to our surgeons about why they should get involved and tell their stories? You know, How does their participation in advocacy help you? and your colleagues in Congress shape legislation to advance musculoskeletal care? Well, the basics always are what is, uh, what is in the patient's best interest. And no one is better at telling that story than patients and doctors. So from that standpoint, the advocacy is, is absolutely critically important. And then I'll either even put another piece of information out there for your consideration. The last time there was a physician in charge of the Energy and Commerce Committee, the last year, was 1837. So it's been a while. So right. you, now, you now have an opportunity with the longest serving physician in the House and the Senate, <laughs> who will be at the top of the dais of the Energy and Commerce Committee next year. And uh, it, it's, my, it's my mission, it's my, my quest to be, uh, to be the next chairman of the Energy and Commerce Committee. Uh, there's no question some of the, the problems that we've seen stem from the fact that legislators don't really understand what happens in a doctor's office, don't really understand what happens in an operating room or in a treatment room. 
So I hope to be able to bring that perspective. And uh, as a consequence, I'm looking forward to us working together, not just during the summer, but uh, really for the next several years ahead. So thanks for letting me be on this today. You are most welcome, Dr. Burgess. That's definitely our hope too. So thank you for coming on The Bone Beat. And again, for talking with us about one of our top priorities. I also want to thank you, Dr. Burgess. Physician and hospitals, as I'm sure you're acutely aware, are very important to AAOS. Uh, They've made a huge appearance and are featured prominently uh, in our unified advocacy agenda, which dictates uh, the topics that we bring to the Hill and to regulators to talk about. Uh, And since you mentioned the election, I just want to encourage members to participate and help us to elect strong leaders like you, Dr. Burgess, to help improve choice and competition. We look forward to working with you on this issue and others in years to come. Great. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Bone Beat from the American Association of Orthopedic Surgeons. For more information on this topic and other AAOS efforts to shape the future of musculoskeletal care, please visit aaos.org advocacy.